2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho capitalist perspective. And tonight is a night where we're going to go back to our Jim Carrey well because he's been recently being dumb and dumber in the news and in the media, talking about how we got to get in on that socialism train. Uh, So we're going to talk about Liar Liar with a special guest, Patrick McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. Before we say hello to him, let's say hello to Robert. How you doing? Hangout episode. We got we got a guest and it's just a nothing movie to talk about. But we do have that socialism angle with the Bill Maher. So we can discuss this and that, but it's mostly just one big drunken hangout episode. Hey, everybody. That's what it's shaping up to be. We've been doing some Patreon bonus content up until now, and we can tell you a little bit later on how to get a piece of that uh, when we get into last night's portion of the show. But Patrick has been uh, a friend of ours for quite a while. He's been on with us a few times in the past talking about uh, Rogue One. And then I think, didn't you also come and talk about the movie It? Or no, it was The Shining. The Shining. And I did that with um, our friend, the librarian. Doc Brown. Doc Brown, the doc. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. And so we've been wanting to get you on again. And uh, so tonight is the night where we're going to do the the liar, liar, because you are now a lawyer, a liar, lawyer, liar. My dad is he is a a liar. That's right. A liar. And I also want to get you back on to do American Psycho at some point in the future, because you guys did a a really good episode of that or of your show, Thought Crime Thursdays on the LibertyWeekly.net, talking about the uh, the novel itself. Right. And and how he gets really deep into the description of all the materialism and all the the items and articles that he uh, uses in his daily life, but in very, very intricate detail. Anyway, the other cool thing that we did with you was the summer series on Wild Wild Country. And that is a five-part series on a six-part Netflix series that uh, we had guest hosts um, on the Liberty Weekly banner to uh, cover you while you were studying for the bar exam. So that whole thing will be in the show notes page down below, but the quick link to it is libertyweekly.net slash WWC. And uh, one of the guest hosts was the guys from Peaceful Treason who were talking about, we were talking about in the pre-show. And those guys are awesome. So as were all of the guests. So I just thought I'd throw that plug in there before we get into the last nighters portion of the show. And the show notes for this for Actual Anarchy is slash 97, FYI. Everyone. Yeah, actually, let me let me mention our uh, how to talk to status a report from Larkin Rose's Candles in the Dark. That was like the first time you guys were on my show. And I still get people yelling at me in the YouTube comments for having the intro music be too loud. So fuck all of you. Well, you heard it here first. It really uh, annoys me when people comment on that video and say whine about the loud music. So I'll edit it out. But Jesus Christ, we were just starting. We are we are still finding a way. We're, we're doing the Jurassic Park thing, finding a way. We are. All right. Well, if you guys don't have anything else just for the sensitive ears of the actual anarchy cadre listener types, we can get into the last nighters portion of the show, which is our cut for the normie friendlies or the normies. Actually, me yelling at everyone for that wasn't enough. So I should put my foot in my mouth again. <laughs> yeah. No, let's uh, transform Daniel into let's the last nighters. All right. Who's got the best transformer noise? You know, Robert. No, you've got one. You throw it out ah, there. No, I haven't done it in a trillion years. <laughs> was that is that terrible that's pretty long that'll do once upon a time it was probably decent you've been sick you've been sick lately i've been sick it's not my fault
Hey everyone, it's the Last Nighters, Daniel and Robert, and we are back again talking about another movie. This is episode 40 of the show. We're going to be talking about Liar Liar with a special guest, Patrick McFarlane of Liberty Weekly, and he has recently passed the bar exam and is now officially working as a liar, I mean a lawyer. And so we thought that this being one of his favorite movies and him now being a lawyer it would be a good time for us to get together and talk about a Jim Carrey movie because he's been back in the news lately on the Bill Maher show talking about socialism and how great it is, even though he's made millions of dollars doing capitalism. Very strange, very strange man. But uh, show notes and more can be found at lastnighters.com slash 40. Uh, this show is also found on the Launchpad Media, where they're always throwing new ideas in your direction. They have many exclusive shows, a different show coming out each day of the week. So do check that out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Uh, let's say hello to Robert, and then we will introduce our guest, and, and our guest can throw out his uh, websites and everything at you, and then we'll get into the Google description. But first, Robert, how are you doing, sir? I know that you've been feeling sick because you visited Chateau Elwood and got uh, illness from my little germ monkey kids. But yeah, I hope thanks a lot, better. you son of a bitch. I'm slowly on the mend. I was having some serious body aches and pains and headaches and you know congestion and whatever i was actually feeling probably okay enough to do the show yesterday but i just there would have been too many sneezes and coughs and not pleasant for anybody and thanks all to you and i think that there's some sort of nap violation when you invite somebody over to your house and you don't inform them that one of your little plague monkeys is currently carrying the plague and you act as if everything's normal and fine and wonderful and then you just cackle nefariously as I drive away knowing that your evil deeds were successful. Well, we have legal representation with us tonight. Yes, we do. In the form of Patrick McFarlane. So, so Pat, do I got a case against this son of a bitch? Well, right. It, well, as we were talking about before in the Patreon bonus content, you might under Wisconsin statutes have a claim for domestic assault. Was it <laughs> domestic violence? Well, uh, at one time we did live together. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah. he infected you according to, what is it, Wisconsin Statutes 813? Anyways, uh, Patrick McFarlane here of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. This is also going to be an episode of my show at libertyweekly.net forward slash 95. Um, really excited to be back with my good friends, Robert and Daniel of the Actual Ant Podcast. We've been doing this podcast game for, I don't know, a bit over a year now. And I started out, they were one of the first shows that I connected with as my show. So we've done the Libertarian Union together. Um, I, it's always a pleasure, guys, just to be on your show. So how's it going? It's going really good, sort of. I'm glad to have you on, buddy. Hell glad yeah. to have you on talking about this uh, pretty interesting topic. I mean, I don't think that there's a lot of meat to chew on this movie. So I know you guys took a lot of notes. Yep. And I'm looking forward to find out what you actually wrote down. But a lot of Daniel's movies lately have been kind of like nostalgia memory lane type movies where we just kind of recite quotes back and forth to each other. So I'm hoping that it's not just a quote fest, although there can be certainly a certain portion of this show devoted to that. Don't get me wrong. But hopefully there are some interesting nuggets which we can pluck out of the dying heart of this movie and discuss. All right, dickhead. Let's Over get into the, <laughs> we'll get into the Google description. They're on to me. <laughs> that was like the best part of the movie. All right. Uh, Liar Liar came out in 1997 at the peak of Jim Carrey's popularity. He was raking in $20 million of film at this point. Uh, one hour, 27 minutes, 6.8 on the IMDb, 81% Rotten Tomatoes, 70% of Metacritics, yet 92% of the Google users like it. And the description is conniving attorney Fletcher Reed, played by Jim Carrey, is an ace in the courtroom. But his dishonesty and devotion to work ruin his relationships. His wife, Audrey, has left him for a more dependable man, and Fletcher often breaks the commitments he makes to his beloved son, Max. When Max wishes his dad would stop lying for 24 hours, Fletcher suddenly finds that he can only speak the truth on the day his career-deciding court case has to be won. Came out March 21st, 1997. Director Tom Shadak and came out with uh, $302 million at the box office on a $45 million budget. What say you about the description, Robert? Um, that's essentially the plot of the movie. It doesn't mention how much of a, you know, Jim Carrey's slapstick comedy carries the film. I think if you take out Jim Carrey and you replace him with anybody else, it would have been a very unfunny and just nothing of a movie. You really need his star power to carry this one through. And upon rewatching for this episode, I was struck by just how little his antics moved me. I mean, at one point in time, he was the guy. He was the star. He was the big money maker. 
I mean, he was fresh off of In Living Color after Ace Ventura. And then he just had a string of hits that all made a ton of money and just gave him a big fat payday. And now he's screaming about socialism. But upon rewatching, this movie just didn't do it for me. I, don't, I didn't laugh once. Um, it, it was just really slapsticky. And, you know, the plot was really predictable. And I assume that most of the good vibes from tonight are going to be purely nostalgia based, but I'm, I'm interested to see if other people actually did enjoy it upon rewatching it. Cause I don't think his comedy aged well. I don't think it's as rewatchable as something like a ghostbusters or an airplane or even like a Spaceballs or three amigos or anything like that. I mean, I think this is comedy of the time. And when Jim Carrey was just this new brave voice in comedy and nobody else is quite doing this, now his stuff kind of seems a little bit played out. All right, harsh words. Robert has thrown down the yeah, gun. Uh, your rebuttal, Mr. McFarland. Uh, how many how many minutes do I have, Your Honor? <laughs> um, it did not age well. I will agree. No, it did not age well. And however, like I, I have to disclose that Liar Liar is I don't, one of my formative movies from my youth. It made a lot of sense to me when I was, I don't know, five to 13 or 14 years old. I think the last time I saw it was a couple of years ago. Um, there's a lot to pick at uh, ethically wise and professionally wise. And I made quite a few notes, but um, yeah, the the acting wasn't very good upon second watch. I, I do like Jim Carrey. Uh, however, his his wife in the film, Audrey, she was not very good. The kid was cute. Um, however, uh, Jerry though even the wonderful jerry lies yeah he's awful i think uh my wife was saying that he seems to have a skill set more geared towards theater the actual theater um but it was bad it i still love it though still love it so, well you uh, can you love bad movies it's all good but yeah. yeah as long as you recognize that it's just yeah not that great of a film and really rides the back of the jim carrey comedy wave yeah, it's it's highly quotable, though. Uh, and even I think, you know, my family will, will quote it back and forth. But uh, should I, you know, I have that uh, Jim Carrey clip, a, a pretty short, I don't know, 15 second clip from Bill Maher. It's all queued up in the hopper. I don't have video, but should I go for it, Daniel? Should we hear that drivel? Yeah, let's, let's hear the uh, the guy who made millions of dollars in a voluntary way talk about socialism. <laughs> we'll see how it is. I haven't listened to this before, but here it goes. I grew up in Canada, okay? We have right. socialized medicine. And I am, I'm here to tell you that this line that you get on all of the political shows from people is that it's a failure. The system is a failure in Canada. It is not a failure in Canada. We Trust have to say yes to socialism, to the word and everything. Researchers and scientists. Wow, okay. Yeah. I hope that was loud enough for everyone. Maybe we could go back through in the mixing later and fix that. But uh, I'm telling you, take my word for it. Socialism is not failing us in the Canadian healthcare system. Yeah, it's so convincing. It's so convincing that he's, well, in my one situation, it, it worked totally. And I think he goes on to say that he never had to wait for any kind of a procedure. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that's what he said, And which is anything but the case. I mean, maybe in Canada, the wait lines are a little less egregious, but in any time you're talking about a socialist medical system or any kind of socialism period, you have a set pool of resources and you have basically people whose job it is to allocate said resources. And there's only so much to go around. And if you have more customers than you do resources, then there is rationing. And you've got people that are on wait lists for certain procedures or any kind of any basic various procedures. Like I, I know this is a common example in the libertarian world, but when Stefan Molyneux had his cancer, he left Canada because to see a doctor would have taken like years to wait for one. He actually went down to like Oklahoma and saw a doctor right away, paid for it, and he's fine. But oftentimes, you know, the poor will have to just sit and wait and oftentimes die. I mean, if you've got some kind of time sensitive thing like cancer diagnosis and you've got a two year wait time, you may not make it. So socialism's great, everybody. Well, and I think Jim Carrey's an American citizen too. I think he has dual citizenship. I don't know how that factors into it, but um, yeah. Well, when you when you have a system that's not based on any price feedback mechanism as um, Mises's socialist calculation problem, you have shortages and you have things like the USSR looking at Sears and Roebuck catalogs to decide how much goods and services, well, goods cost. But uh, yeah, I don't want to get too sidetracked from the movie, though. Um, but I always kind of do these things timeline, kind of a scene by scene kind of thing. So that's how I took my notes. All right, Pat, bring it, buddy. 
Right on. Okay, so I just I just started practicing like three weeks ago, and I'm going to take this opportunity to kind of talk about the things I've learned about the legal system so far, which I've learned more in the last two or three weeks than I think I did in an entire semester of law school. And and you kind of realize that um, at least for the for the time being, you kind of fake it till you make it. You know, you it, it's hard to figure these things out, and the only thing you really learn in law school is how to think like a lawyer. Um, but right away, you kind of get this theme that everyone hates lawyers, right? I mean, let's go. Come on, lay it on me. What is 2000? What do you call 2000 dead lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? Uh, a good start. That's right, buddy. <laughs> um, where, where do lawyers learn how to suck blood? No, shit. <laughs> where do lawyers learn how to suck blood? <laughs> In law school. Okay. Um, what's the difference between a carp and a lawyer? No. What is it? <laughs> one is a like a blood sucking bottom bottom feeder and the other one is a fish right the difference between a carp and a lawyer okay so i would say that everyone hates lawyers until they need one because there's nothing like getting served with the lawsuit and being dragged into court because the court is a monopoly and it has coercive power over you and i always kind of say that like if the state if the court decides to dance with you the court's like a big gorilla right if the gorilla is going to dance with you it's going to dance with you whether you like it or not and when you get served with that lawsuit or when someone has filed an action against you that cuts off the corner of your house in a property dispute, or you know when someone's trying to take your kids away, or when, hypothetically speaking, your girlfriend calls you over and then slews uh, accusations at you that you hit her, and the cops show up and believe her side, and the judges believe her side too, you want a lawyer. You re in fact, you really need a lawyer, so your lawyer becomes your best friend. And in a lot of ways, the job of a lawyer is to be a counselor. That's why they call you counselor. You help people through the legal process and you advise them. In a lot of ways, you're kind of a social worker because you they come to you. And the, the one thing I've learned from my associates and my part, not my partners, but my associates are that uh, the first question they ask when someone comes in the office is, what's going on? Tell me a little bit about what's going on with you. So that's just a start because right, right away in the beginning, you get Fletcher walking out of the courthouse and everyone's like, oh, what a great win. What a great win. And he's sleezing past and he, he walks past this client. He's like, oh, Fletch or Fletcher, do you want your coat back as he takes the suit off? And yes, you want you want your clients to dress well when you bring them into court. <laughs> Yeah, it seems to me that I don't necessarily think of lawyers as being evil, per se. I, I think that they're people responding to the incentives of a monopoly system. Um, now, I don't know exactly where the chicken and the egg situation is, where it's lawyers making the law intentionally obtuse or politicians making the law intentionally obtuse. But it's definitely intentionally obtuse to the point at which your average human being, in fact, any human being, period, has no chance of knowing all the laws of the land. They say ignorance of the law is no excuse. I challenge any human being, including every single one on the Supreme Court, every law, every lawyer who's ever lived. I mean, nobody knows all the laws of the land. It, there are people whose job it is. I mean, not even the senators who vote on the laws have even read like a tenth of the pages of the law. They get the law... They get the law and then they're like an hour later, there's it's like 500 pages and an hour later, they're going to vote on it. It's a complete joke. But, you know, there's so there's no way like the average person could even begin to like understand the law, let alone defend themselves. So I understand why a lawyer would be, you know, your best friend in that situation. And it is during a very dark time. You know, it's like being accused of a crime is a horrifically, you know, damaging thing and just even being accused you know it's a hit to your reputation and then it's you know a massive monetary expenditure and then even if you're found innocent sometimes your reputation doesn't even recover so it's a massively you know it's one of the worst times of your life of when so yeah i could see your lawyer being a very desperate buoy to cling to in the middle of a storm but would you say that it's you know lawyers really reaping the benefit you know, intentionally making the law obtuse so that they've got this kind of monopoly and haha, you got to pay me all this money to make sense of this crap. Or is it like, you know, lawyers and just kind of everybody understanding, you know, where the incentives are and this is what we get because this is totally a shit show. I mean, you got to admit that. Yeah, well, I don't think that in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no, because uh, if you read Bruce L. Benson's The Enterprise of Law, he kind of talks, he goes through the a brief overview of the history of the Western legal tradition. And a lot of it is rooted in the Anglo-Saxon system and the handing over of the Anglo-Saxon system to the Norman kings after the Norman invasion, I think in like 1150 AD. And I've done some work on this 
at Liberty Weekly. Um, Liberty Weekly and the Magna Carta or the Magna Carta episode I did. So just go to libertyweekly.net, search Magna Carta. I'm not remembering the episode number. Um, but he says that after the Norman invasion, the state starts to subsume all of these crimes that used to be between private individuals and instead will prosecute them on behalf of the victim instead of the victim pursuing their own justice. So gradually crimes against private crimes become the public domain. So the state will prosecute it. And um, so you get a lot of that. It's a lot of revenue seeking on behalf of the king, the kings as they're seeking, you know, more money for wars or aggression or protection or whatever. And in this time you get lawyers, the legal profession develops. And I don't think it's a coincidence, but the law itself becomes less accessible, more complicated, more expensive during this time that lawyers are introduced. I don't I don't necessarily think it was a nefarious thing. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Law and Revolution, and it's um, an overview of the Western legal tradition itself. And kind of the thesis of it is that law goes in, not really in spurts, it will, it will uh, progress very slowly and gradually over time, but it is punctuated by violent revolutions and especially the West legal tradition. And so that, that's a very interesting uh, aspect of it. So in one sense, I would say that the law is monolithic and it will change very gradually. So I don't think it's a very concerted effort of attorneys to make the law more complicated. I think that's just the way it has gone and maybe subconsciously so. But yes, there are other ways in which lawyers will kind of tweak it, especially when it comes to our time, because the, the unit of time is your measurement as a lawyer. Um, that's your measurement of billing. Um, so that's kind of what you work in is your time. And there are ways you kind of make things work. And um, I'm not I'm talking more hypothetically or or just general things that will happen, not because lawyers want to cheat you out of their money, but that's just kind of uh, the reality of the situation is that, you know, when you're billing you, it's all complicated in a sense where maybe you're weighing different economic things. And, and this is what I'm referring to is that you're weighing different economic opportunities. You not only have to think about your case in the legal perspective procedurally of, OK, what should I do next? Should I file this motion? Or should I do this sort of thing? But you also have to think of it in terms of what your client can afford and what your client wants. So maybe what you'd like to do if you had a shitload of money and time is hire an expert witness and really pursue something. But if you did that, you would rack your client's retainer up, you'd spend it all up, and then you'd have to charge them more money, and that just wouldn't work. So those are things that really complicate things and make the law more complicated. Another thing that I would say that makes the case complicated in a way that lawyers drive it is that when you're trying to argue it to the judge, the judge really, in a lot of cases, just wants you to lay out the road ahead of them for them so that the, the judges don't necessarily have to expend all this time and research thinking about an, a good solution to the law. They, they can take the and this is how the adversarial process works is that the judges don't necessarily want to think about the case as hard because they have 50 million other cases. So they will just look to the attorney that has the simpler to understand, more straightforward and more commonsensical theory of the case itself. And they will say, aha, that's what I want to do. Therefore, you can see through the common law system how the law will develop in that direction. So I, I hope I was good at kind of answering your questions. I hope I didn't get too off the rails there. <laughs> I think in typical, in typical lawyer fashion, you gave us a nice big fat word salad that nobody can make sense of. So good job. <laughs> yeah, it ties right into this movie, which the whole movie is pretty much a word salad. Now, my first note in this is Jim Carrey is a commie. So we've already kind of covered that. Right. Um, there's a part that did hit me a little bit hard and that was in his disappointing his kid. And this is because he worked too much and he was making all these promises to the kid, but then things would come up that would help him, you know, promote his career or, uh, he had to work extra hours or, uh, he was recently divorced and his legal <laughs> boss lady was coming on to him and oh, yeah. he missed the, the birthday party. And that I think was pretty terrible. That was like an awful, like, this is a bad thing. You should not have done this. Disappointing your kid in that respect is really terrible. Um, now, I, I also want to talk about the Carrie Ewells, the guy who played Jerry. Always. Wesley yeah. in A Princess Bride. And right. in that movie, he's, a, you know, he's dashing and daring and he's the Dread Pirate Roberts and he's a really cool guy. In this, he is an annoying as fuck beta male <laughs> cuck motherfucker <laughs> like and i'm sorry about all the curse words uh last nighters fans um but yeah he was like super annoying like beyond and, and i'm sure it was an intentional thing to 
drive a, a pretty big wedge in contrast between his character and Jim Carrey's character in the love interest of the mom of Audrey. And so they had to like exaggerate every little thing that they could to make that distinction between the two. Cause this is not like a high highbrow movie. This is, this is pretty, pretty base in a lot of ways, but it also has some very um, overproduced bits like overly cutesy like the little musical quips and things like that that are thrown in just felt super cheesy to me like they overproduced and i don't know if you guys picked up on that but that that was another note that i had that goes with the overacting theme in general of jim carrey i think and uh well yeah. and notice in the description they, they said he's an ace lawyer and that's of course alluding to his popular turn as ace ventura talking out of his butt cheeks all right but go ahead robert well, I, I was just going to say a few words in defense of Jerry. I, I felt a little bit of sympathy for him as a stepfather. Um, on a personal note, I didn't have a good relationship with my stepfather. And as an adult, I look back on it and I kind of regret all the, the, the hard times I gave him and how, the, how difficult the situation was for him to step in. And, you know, am I the father? Am I the friend? Am I, I'm going to try and discipline this person. Uh, you know, you can't compete with, the actual father, but you know, you love him and you love the wife and it's just a tough situation to be in. So for me, I got a lot, of, I had a lot of sympathy for the Jerry character trying to compete with the, the rubber man fun of Jim Carrey. You know, he's trying to compete with him on his level, which I mean, who could do that? I mean, uh, he was probably better off trying to be himself being Mr. Consistency and being Mr. There and, uh, you know, doing his own thing instead of trying to replace the father. But, uh, I did have some sympathy for the old poor Jer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Now, Pat, I actually have a question for you, so just so we're kind of moving the show along because we're already about halfway through our allotted time. Just so oh, you know, man. I'm billing you by by the quarter minute, actually. <laughs> uh, so you now being in, uh, you know, an established official lawyer working in a practice, this question is directed to you. Mrs. Cole, who is the client who is seeking the divorce from the husband and had signed a prenup and she's trying to defeat that to get more money out of the husband. She admits to Jim Carrey's character that she's lying. She admits to the lawyer that she's lying. Is there some ethical obligation for the lawyer at this point, knowing that the client is lying, to recuse himself, to not take the case? Because it's been my understanding that you'll defend based on the facts as you know them. But once you know that your client's lying, like, aren't you kind of being unethical? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that, and that was one of the I knew this would come up. That was one of the biggest quibbles with this film is that um, there there is so the the state bar regulates lawyers. Uh, it's a I believe it's a private enterprise that the state gives a monopoly to in regulation of lawyers. And it's each state bar does that. And the American Bar Association only accredits law schools. And this is something that I've said wrong on my program in the past. So I really wanted to correct it because the federal ABA American Bar Association only accredits law schools. They don't deal with lawyer investigations. And this has come up in the Kavanaugh thing. Actually today, check my Twitter account. Um, so what I found interesting about this is that in the world of lawyer ethics, the absolute worst mortal sin is dishonesty, right? You could going into law school, I've known people that had former drug charges, people that had committed violent acts against others, uh, people who had multiple OWIs or, uh, I guess, driving under the influence, depending on where you are. Um, and they were convicted of that. They disclosed those and they were still admitted to the bar. But if you are um, convicted of you know, any crime involving dishonesty or having civil judgments against you for dishonesty, that's a big, big, big no-no. And in fact, you'll get, you know, you can get disbarred pretty easily for being dishonest. So that's something that they take very seriously. And um, there's no way that Miranda, the attorney, could talk like that and get away with it behind the scenes. I think you are, if you are aware that another attorney is uh, engaged in an ethical violation, you have a duty to report them. And so that, that's another thing. If you know that your client is lying, you can't call them to the stand and aid in their lying. And in fact, if you have certain things, you can progress it. There are certain steps you can take 
Uh, one even involves talking to the judge because you also have conflicting obligations to your client of confidentiality. So you can take certain steps. And at the end of the day, you might have to recuse yourself from the case. There might be no way around it. Likewise, in this case, Samantha, uh, the client, I believe her name is Samantha. She wants to take, because in every case, your client is the captain of the ship. And you, at the end of the day, are just the attorney that's shoveling coal in the boiler, moving the ship forward. Ultimately, your client steers the ship. So if you and your client honestly have a disagreement about where to take the case and you will not take it a certain way, you can petition the court to recuse yourself from the case. Okay, so this is a screenwriter writing a script and not really having a grasp of how the legal profession really works in this regard. Because they had to make her be this gold digger, um, really evil person who's willing to lie to go to any end to get whatever she wants. And this ties right into my next question. And, and Robert, I will direct this one to you. And then, Pat, you can chime in as you will. It seems like Miss Cole is clearly aware of the advantage she has being the woman in a family court situation. And I don't know what the stats are on this, but I would have to imagine that the woman gets sided with in a very, very high percentage, like probably 90, 95%. I'm talking like child support, getting the house, getting half of everything, getting uh, custody of the kids, all of those things. And it really seems like that is not uh, an equal application of the law. And it's a perversion of the law that uh, goes unchallenged. And uh, I don't know, Robert, take it away. Just you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because that seemed like that that was what she was using to her advantage, like this well-known kind of thing. Right. And I think that it, there's a seeming uh, precedent, and I'm speaking as a layman here, of course, but there seems to be a precedent that if there is no prenuptial agreement, then the there's a certain amount of money that the husband then is owed to or due to the, 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 the wife to maintain her level of living standard as if you're somehow owed some level of living standard due to the amount of time you put into the relationship originally. Like there's some sort of invisible check marks that you're checking off. Like, okay, I've put in my time for five years. Now I'm due five years time of this continued life. And like, that seems to be the precedent that the law takes into account and then enforces. I like to get Pat's position on this because it sure doesn't live up to any kind of libertarian standard. And the law is essentially libertarian, as I understand it. It seems to think that people are owed things that which they have not earned. Like there's a great bit by uh, Bill Burr about you know Tiger Woods and his divorce proceedings and like how his wife didn't help him hit any of those golf balls couldn't hit a golf ball to save her life as well as he could, but was somehow equal and due to half of his wealth for some reason. And is now a multi, multi, multi-millionaire for her contribution to the family. And yeah, it seems skewed to me. And it definitely does skew towards the woman in this kind of gynocentric world that we live in. Uh, Patrick, your thoughts on the idea of uh, women being able, you know, being owed like restitution based on their living standards to be maintained. Yeah, this is termed, uh, the term of art is maintenance or alimony. Alimony is the old fashioned term. Uh, usually now it's called maintenance. Uh, mostly has to do with the theory behind it has to do that when you get married, everything from the point of marriage on is marital property, which is um, communal in a sense. Wisconsin is a community property state, which is the outlier. And But marital property just kind of assumes that once you enter the marriage, everything that you get during the marriage is a product itself of the marriage. Unless you are getting a gift or an inheritance during the marriage, then that's considered separate property. But you think that during the marriage, you are a joint legal unit. Everything you earn during the marriage becomes part of that joint unit. And so a big part of divorce is when that marital property comes into being, then you have to divvy things up in an equitable division. And equitable doesn't always mean equal, um, but my, uh, my boss, my mentor, he always explains it this way, is that what we're doing is we're taking things and putting them in different stovepipes. So you, you, you tackle one thing at a time, all the assets, you determine what is a product of the marriage, you put them in their own separate spheres, and then you trade them back and forth between the parties who are divorcing to try and get some kind of agreement of, of who's taking what and what is fair. Now so just to sorry, just to interject. So the assumption is that both parties have an equal input to the marriage and therefore divert deserve equal outcome of the marriage. 
Um, I think marriage property. Right, right. Yeah. So when when you get married, everything you accrue after that point of marriage becomes shared between the parties. And so this concept of maintenance or alimony, usually uh, the courts aren't as friendly towards it when the marriage is short, maybe about five years, uh, because every marriage below five years by the courts, at least in Wisconsin, is considered to be a short marriage. So after that, this idea is, is that, okay, well, the wife always contribute or each party always contributes something, whether one party works and puts the other through school, or even if wifey is staying home and taking care of the kids or the household, excuse me, <laughs> some beer. Um, even if the wife is at home taking care of the household during all this time, she's still quote unquote contributing to the marriage because you would either have to pay someone to clean your house. And I think they actually take the rate that it would cost to hire someone on the market to clean your house, right? To figure how much the wife is owed for cleaning the house because in the absence of her staying home, cleaning the house. So the logic goes, you would have to hire someone to clean your house or do it yourself which if you do it yourself, that takes time away from what you can be using to put towards earning more money. So it's a catch 22 in some ways that they're always, you know, going to find this maintenance. And so, the, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that usually the question kind of goes down to how much maintenance should be and how long it should be in effect for. And we can get into custody because custody of the children is what really makes it more complicated. Right. So what I'm interested in, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to solve this tonight, but yeah, in a, in a free market situation, would, I mean, of course, we don't know the answer to this, but in a purely libertarian world type private property situation, would like alimony be a thing? Would there be a, some private company that comes along and like forcibly extorts money from, you know, some guy or some lady and pays it to their ex for whatever reason? Is this a legitimate thing? Or is this a state-imposed thing that wouldn't exist in uh, in a private property situation? Well, right now you're living in a system where the um, the concept of marriage itself is monopolized by the state, and also kind of in a way um, subsumed by religious institutions. In a free market society, I think that the only benefit you would have there would be so in a free market situation there would be a separation between these two ideas. You would have a marriage as a religious or personal institution, which would have no bearing on the law whatsoever. And you could intertwine them, whereas if you wanted to solemnize, solemnization is actually a requirement of common law marriage and marriage, I believe, marriage itself, the ceremony itself. But in a free market situation, these concepts would be divided and they could cross over, I suppose. But the only benefit, I think, of the major benefit of being legally married is to have the benefits, the legal benefits bestowed upon a partner, mostly tax benefits, mostly the ability to be treated differently e legally, but also to visit them in the hospital or to enter um, survivorship marital property, where if one of them dies, then you automatically inherit the property. So um, I do think that a lot in, in the... Um, in a free market situation, right, these things would be separated. But if you were married in a free market situation and wanted to get legal status, um, I think that prenups would be the usual. I really do. And But that comes with a whole bunch of um, little different nuances, too, because then you ask, you have, you know, you have all the contract formation stuff that goes into that because essentially a prenup is a contract. So contract law would apply. So, <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. Getting, getting deep into the weeds with Pat McFarlane. Yeah, here. but it's what we do. All right. Well, I've had better. So let's, uh, <laughs> but do you want to talk about children now? I mean, like... no, let's, let's move it along a little bit. Uh, okay. cause we, we're, we're going to run out of time here before we know it. So he does do the, I have, I've had better. So we could get into, you know, a little bit of the quotes thing here. Uh, but when he's not able to lie any longer, he encounters a woman in the elevator and he makes all of these lewd remarks and motions intimating that he would like to suckle on her bosom. And I'm wondering if that situation, when viewed today, because this movie did not age well uh, in, in light of the Kavanaugh thing and the Me Too and all this other stuff, if that would have been considered considered elevator rape. Yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't. I mean, it's it's a strange scene anyway, because... You know, all he can do is not lie, but he can just sit there quietly. It's not like you have to act like a crazy person. Yeah, that that seemed to happen quite a lot. Like he was he was, like you said, not allowed to lie due to this curse or whatever. But he's volunteering all of this additional behaviors and, and information when questioned about things like he could just keep it simple and short and not lie in his response. But then I guess you don't really have Jim Carrey doing his wackadoodle be crazy. Yep. 
that's what you don't have. You would just have a straight man going, giving very short, terse answers to things, trying to say as little as possible and having everybody else be kind of crazy and trying to prod him for information. And it'd be a complete reversal on the comedy. Yes. I just did the I just did the thing. Yes, you just did the thing that you're just talking about. Hey Pat, what let's let's try and get through some of your notes here, buddy. What do you got for us? All right, yeah. So everything about that trial was wrong. Um you have like two different parts. <clears throat> Excuse me. So usually there's a pre-trial conference that you have before a court trial proper. Everything that would be argued by each side will have been spelled out either during discovery or during settlement negotiations, kind of the theory of the case. Or you might have motions, like pre-trial motions. Um, so nothing soup would be a super-duper surprise. You also, during discovery, you have discovery demands that will say that each party has to share all the relevant information with each side. And I just don't see something like that really getting lost. The I, this So, spoiler alert, at the end, he wins the trial because she... Turns out she was a minor when entering the um, prenup. And I don't think that's always a kicker. I don't think that always voids a prenup because the law has confronted this problem before, <laughs> believe it or not. So it depends on your your case law from your different states. But so, yeah, you, you would not have any surprises like that. I think the judge obviously would have called it before things got as crazy as they did. And um, that's not how direct examination and cross works. That's also not how like a trial is formatted in terms of, you know, maybe the petitioner because Jim Carrey's the respondent, which is kind of weird how they use those terms, because at one point he says respondent calls Kenneth Cole to the stand. And I'm just I don't know, maybe I don't know procedurally how divorces work as well as I should yet because I haven't litigated one. But it was all interesting. I was really struck how Jim Carrey was not very busy throughout this whole thing because i mean my boss is running around like a chicken with his head cut off all day long he's in consultations with clients all day long or he's in court or he's trying to like being a lawyer is like running from one fucking fire to the next putting it out that's literally how it is so fucking jim carrey you know he has time to pal around with his secretary and stuff like that and the role of the secretary herself greta i i don't know if she was a, a secretary or a paralegal because really in, in the law world, your paralegal is your best fucking friend because they're the one drafting all the motions. I mean, you're working on it with them, but they're doing all the bitch work. There's no way you'd be able to make money if it wasn't for your paralegal. So you treat your paralegal well. Hey, we're, do we're doing a kid show here, Pat. So watch the, watch the fucking language. Oh, we are? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't scare me, bro. Um, what? Yeah, so keep going. Oh, yeah, he sleeps around too. And apparently that's that's the most accurate part of the of the film, because big firms, everyone's fucking everyone. Everyone's doing cocaine. Um, I have it on decent authority that I won't elaborate, but that's what happens in big firms. All right. Well, maybe we should save some of this stuff for our Patreon bonus content that can be uh, accessed at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. So we'll go a little bit longer tonight and get more into the cocaine parties. <laughs> <laughs> if that's all right. Um, but back to uh, the point that Robert and I were talking about where Jim Carrey is volunteering all this additional information. Uh, I had written, written in my notes, I called it Tourette's for responding randomly. Like he has this uncontrollable urge to just do something that's ridiculous or say something crazy. And uh, let's see. Oh, yes. This was a question that we talked about in some of the pre-show where Jim Carrey's talking to Greta and he says, she tells him about this story where a burglar cut his leg breaking into someone's house and won $6,000 suing the victim. And Jim Carrey's response is, I'd have gotten him 10. And I, I, I know we talked about this real briefly in the beginning, but I believe that there was a case of this in London where an, an, uh, a man defended himself or a, a burglar got injured like on the glass that he broke entering the home and the homeowner got sued as a result and the burglar won. I'd have yeah, to Pat, defend that shit. <laughs> I'd have to see this case, but I mean, normally that would be like we were talking about earlier. It'd be you have a duty to protect known trespassers from. So I, okay, first of all, I don't think that. Wait was a minute, known trespassers. So say you're Scrooge McDuck. And you've got this giant money bin, and it's a huge draw for any crime criminal in the world. So he has a known duty to make it as safe as possible for any criminal who wants to come in and steal his money. Yeah, but you have to take reasonable efforts, everything reasonable. So the, the question of reasonable reasonableness would be for the jury or the fact finder. Um, but we were talking, you, you have to, you have a duty to protect known trespassers from your, you know, from known um, nuisances on your property, known dangerous 
obstacles. I'm forgetting the term of art that I used earlier. Um, I just don't think that that's foreseeable. I don't think that any of that is foreseeable, that you would be cutting vegetables on your counter and someone might sneak onto your roof and fall through. So like, what about, isn't there, forgive me, or maybe you can elaborate on this, but I recall, seem to recall a case where a guy was getting broken into his house over and over again. Yeah. And he had finally had enough. And so he set up a shotgun trap. Can't do that. And a guy walked through the door and set off the shotgun and killed him. Can't do that. Why not? Um, I think that, that because the the response is unequal to the... Well, it, I think it really depends, too, because there's also a, a doctrine of law called the castle doctrine, where if someone is breaking into your house, you have no duty to retreat, right? Your house is your castle. You can use deadly force to repel them, but you can't use deadly force or grievous inflict grievous bodily injury to protect your chattels. That just doesn't... I think, it's, uh, I think it would also be an NAP violation because you're responding to force with an unequal force. So it's a, you're using a proportionality argument there. Yeah, proportionality. Um, I'd have to look at the... I remember stuff like this. I think this is just a general font of law. Well, if someone's breaking into your house and your home and they know your home, they're not there to sell you cookies. Right. Yeah, but yeah, how do you know? How do you know what it is that they're going to do? Well, right. This guy that we're talking about, he knew that, I believe he knew that his cabin was being broken into, or he knew that the property was being broken into while he wasn't there. So he set up a dangerous trap. Yeah, in that one case, he had been broken into many times, as I recall, and so set up this trap because he was sick and tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, And he's sick and tired of the police being unable to stop it. Yeah, right, right. Well, I think um, he could probably try and trap them in like a, a cage. <laughs> like they bear walk- trap? Yeah, right. Well, maybe yeah, a bear trap would break their leg or something, right? Yeah, this reminds me of um, a guy during the, uh, you know, the, the last election cycle. His Trump sign kept getting torn out of the ground. And so he wrapped it in electric wire, I think. And so the next time some leftist like tried to steal it, they got shocked or something like that. I think there was some video of it. And I'm pretty sure that, that the guy got in trouble for doing it, but I don't recall the, the full details. Well, that reminds me of um, our mailboxes. Mailbox house, 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 this house that I'm in right now had been driven over by some, who knows, rampaging hooligan person. And I, you know, it's kind of like a, a neighborhood area thing. Like there's multiple mailboxes on this, you know, in this area. It's on this house's property, but, you know, the whole, everybody kind of contributes. So we kind of build it and we built it, rebuilt it out of wood. But I was like, build it out of steel or build it out of wood and then have a steel core. So the next person that comes along and runs over their car, smashes the fuck out of their car. Are you saying that I'm in trouble for something here, Pat? Okay, I'm so sorry. I was researching your last question on Westlaw. <laughs> That's you... the same. It's the same kind of similar thing. I mean, it's kind of a trap, but it's also kind of just, you know, I'm building a very robust mailbox. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, it really depends on what the case law has to say about it. Yeah. In, in your instance, Robert, I would consider that that would just be a, a choice of building materials that would be standard, right? Reasonable man would consider wood or steel being a fine thing Seems to build like a it. mailbox out of. Um, well, I don't see, even if I had, even if I make it out of like hit me signs and then the inside is like steel wrapped in steel and like drive over me here, it's still a violation of my property if the car drives over and does that, even at my behest. Yeah. Is it not? No, I think not at your behest. If you're asking them to, you're authorizing it. Right. Mm, all right. Fair enough. All right. But what if I, <laughs> what if I made it out of like balsa wood on the outside and concrete on the inside? I, I think it's a choice of building materials, right? All right. That's next, not like a new line it, of questioning. New line of questioning. I move to dismiss. We need to move along. <laughs> you son of a bitch. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about one thing that they can't do today that they do in this movie. And then let's get into our final submarine review or, or any final like last minute throw ins that you got there, Pat. So the biggest note I have left is when he's doing the roast of the partners and, and the, the head guy at the meeting and he's calling everyone a loser, wimp, degenerate, slut, dickhead. Um, the guy who's wearing a hairpiece, he scalps the guy Indian style. And then does an Indian war cry. Now, this is a 21-year-old movie, but I have a feeling that Hollywood couldn't get away with doing that today. Wait, Indian, Daniel? Indian? You mean Native American? Is Indian not okay to say? I don't even know. 
I'm just fucking with you. No, but I actually, um, interesting side note, the body of law called Indian law, it's literally is called Indian law. That's the term of art. So even the natives use it, Indian law. And I wanted to do a show on this, but the tribal courts actually have their own carved out sovereignty. Of course, the federal government has granted it to them, but they have sovereignty in their certain areas and they have their own court system. It's really interesting. But no, that would never go over today. Hell no. And it's surprising that people don't dig this up from Jim Carrey's past and shove it in his face. Yeah, apparently anything uh, in the past 36 years is now fair game, right? Well, he does have left cover, though. Come on, let's be real. Well, that was what the Bill Maher appearance was all about, probably. (sighs) Covering up for his past sins. (laughs) You have to atone. All right, well, let's get into the final summary and review. And uh, Pat, you've heard the show before, so why don't you lead us off? You're you're the the lead hitter here. (laughs) Black black and gold, boys. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. I would, um, well, of course it's one of my favorite movies. It was decent to watch again, but it can sit on the shelf again for another three or four years before I see this film again. Um, coming at it from a new perspective of being a lawyer, I suppose it was interesting to see how wrong it was. I can't, I can't watch law and order or any of those shows ever since I started law school. Cause it's just freaking ridiculous, man. But, um, I don't know. I, it doesn't age well as a child. I remember, this movie is like a nine out of 10, but now I think maybe a five or a six, unfortunately. So still black and gold. What do you guys think? All right, well, I'll go and then we'll let Robert finish her out. You'll be the cleanup hitter, Robert. So yeah, this movie, I remember liking it when I first saw it back when it came out in 1997. I was a big Jim Carrey fan at the time. Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura. Um, there was something else he was in. The Mask I did not like. Oh, The Cable Guy. I loved The Cable Guy and critics panned it. People hated that movie, but it, it's so dark and, and it just has like a, a streak of humor in it that is far different than this slapstick pie in the face over actor stuff that we see here. The script in this does just seem to want to contort itself into just getting Jim Carrey into whatever position he can be in to be ridiculous. Um, the the script in the story is pretty bare bones. The concept that we talked about where family courts tend to seemingly, to this layman, seem to side with uh, the women in the majority of the cases is a pretty interesting thing because that is like one of the crucial um you know the the main point of the movie and that that Samantha character thinks that she can she's entitled to winning this case because she's a woman and he even appeals to that when he's trying to get her to hire him he says um and I, I have it written down here he says he appeals to her collectivism by referring to her being a strong woman and not of the weaker sex that women are capable and strong and all of these things so uh what the heck was i talking about um that i think that this is one of the reasons why we see things like the MGTOW movement the men going their own way and i have a quote related to that uh this is in a, in a book called men on strike and it says why men don't marry because there's nothing in it for them what exactly does marriage offer men today men know there's a good chance they'll lose their friends their respect their space their sex life their money and if it all goes wrong their family uh, they don't want to enter into a legal contract with someone who could effectively take half their savings pension and property when the honeymoon period is over men are wimping out by staying unmarried or being commitment phobes and unfortunately they're being smart so that's a, I mean, that's pretty damning. And I think that's a result of this monopoly provision of justice that tends to um, skew in one direction over the other and not uh, have an equal application uh, that, that they allude to when, you know, you hear about law and justice and equality and scales of justice and equal application, all these things. So anyway, that, that just kind of is one side point I want to make about this. But just in general, the movie, I think, yeah, doesn't play well 20 years later. Um, Jim Carrey, not a big fan of, of him in this movie. I think that he was just being Ace Ventura wearing a suit. So I'm going to go with like a four, a 4.0 on this and pass it over to Roberto. Well, the MGTOW, you make a lot of good points, both of you guys. Daniel, I'm going to kind of run off here what you just said. Um, the MGTOW movement, and I'll just pontificate on my own understanding of it. And uh, it's... Yeah, it's not just that women can take you for everything based, you know, once the honeymoon's over and that women have this idea that, you know, once love is gone, then it's time to move on to the next love scenario and the next love connection. And a lot of people, you know, marrying for love and it's not necessarily, you know, marriage is hard. Marriage is a commitment and it's a partnership. And uh, it's uh, this idea of romantic love is uh, the end all and be all. And the sense of entitlement that women get 
and probably men get too. But yeah, like in the movie, the woman feels entitled to more because reasons, because vagina. And, you know, due to the nanny state and welfare system, women can get by just fine without a man in their life. And it creates a woman in general, of course, speaking, that doesn't necessarily need to make the best judgments as when she's picking who to marry, who to spend her life with. Because if this guy doesn't work out, don't, not a big deal. Don't have to put in a lot of work. Not to say that women don't put a lot of work in marriage. I'm not saying that, but there are definitely women out there and the incentives create them. I'm not saying that these people are just bad people, but when you have an incentives geared towards, you know, not necessarily needing to just, you know, pick the best guy, not necessarily needing to pick, you know, the the best contraceptive method or being careful or making sure that the guy's going to stick around. You've got the big baddie state to, you got your back and will be the daddy in the situation. And it's led to the destruction of families and all kinds of horrific statistics that are a Google search away. I mean, all kinds of suicides and just the worst kind of behavior from single parent households. And it's a real terrible scenario. And more men are committing suicide. Like they're like 80% of suicides. It's, it's, it's terrible. Anyway. It's called No Fault Divorce. And that's there you what, go. I'm surprised this hasn't come up yet in this episode. Um, no Fault Divorce. And even my family law pers- professor who was, who, you know, all my professors were lefty, skewed left. But even she said, is it a good idea that we got rid of No Fault Divorce? So for those who don't know, No Fault Divorce and the reason why they're fighting in this trial itself is because of this concept of, well, what are you? You need grounds to get divorced. One of the grounds is um, infidelity or abandonment or abuse or all of these other things. So you used to have to have a reason, a good reason to get divorced. Now, all you have to do is demonstrate that, quote unquote, the marriage is ir- irretrievably broken. So there you go. Right. So anyway, uh, the movie itself. So anyway, yeah, this, the world we live in is a real sad situation. And uh, uh, those kinds of effects can be found uh, very easily. And I recommend if you're interested in this um, to seek that out. But the movie itself uh, didn't age well for me. Uh, Jim Carrey's slapstick. I mean, I really you're, this is coming from a Jim Carrey fan. I from back in the days of In Living Color when he was Farmer Bill. I thought he was absolutely hilarious. And, you know, when he came on with Ace Ventura, I thought he was still hilarious and other people didn't know what to make of him. Uh, There's a famous uh, feud between him and Tommy Lee Jones, where one time Tommy Lee Jones came up to him at a a restaurant and said, I can't stomach your buffoonery, which is just classic. Um, So that's clearly what Jim Carrey basically is. And he had his long run of comedy where then he went to more serious stuff with like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And... uh, had a quite successful run at it, but now he has come out as a avowed socialist, which is not really surprising in terms of uh, the typical Hollywood actor person. I think there's a lot of just general bubble aspects to leftism and socialism. There's also a probably a fair amount of peer pressure, but there isn't a lot of sound economic advice being chattered about at your typical Hollywood party in my, in my guesstimation. Uh, but uh, yeah, this movie, let me just give it a, a rating. Give me a, I'm not going to give it a black and red. I'm not going to give it a black and gold. Our old, our old rating situation that Pat has resurrected. I appreciate that, buddy. Uh, but I am going to give this just uh, a five. It's just a movie. Um, it, in its day, it was probably closer to an eight. Probably made me a laugh a lot. But on um, rewatch, it was just not, not really anything. But it didn't do a whole lot of things like totally wrong. It had like character arcs and, you know, good real human emotion of abandonment and, you know, that kind of things. And people making sacrifices for the family to promote their career, which are things that people can really identify with, I think. So, um, you know, it's not the worst movie, but it is really kind of just like a slapsticky old Jim Carrey movie. So that would really struck me strongly. I was like, wow, this movie's really kind of slapsticky. I didn't realize that Jim Carrey was a slapstick comedian, but... Now, uh, looking back at it objectively, he's definitely slapsticky comedian. So, yeah, 5.0. There we go. All right. Well, very good. And I think that's going to about wrap it up for us here on The Last Nighters. And this is uh, episode 40 of the show. So the show notes can be found at lastnighters.com slash 40. We're going to get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive uh, after this. You can access that on our Patreon at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. And, Robert, I think the next movie we're going to do is going to be about... um, Nazis and ANCOMs, if if you're down, uh, that Patrick Stewart vehicle called Green Room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just saw that movie up at your little plague cabin. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm down to do it. 
so yeah we'll, we'll do that one next um it's it's sort of in the horror genre and we're in the october season now so it, it feels appropriate and uh, i think that there's a fair amount to talk about based on our viewing so we'll be doing that next um pat we really appreciate you being a guest with us here on the last nighters if you wouldn't mind just throwing out your uh website and how people can follow your work uh and then we'll say good night all right thanks guys yeah always a pleasure to join you again um, everyone can find my work at libertyweekly.net. Otherwise, you can find my work at the libertarianinstitute.org, where Scott Horton has been gracious enough to allow me to publish my work. And I have some very exciting changes that are coming to the show, and I'm very excited to announce them, but it probably won't be until November, until that really kicks into full effect. If you'd like to support my work, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash libertyweekly, and there you can find the bonus content that we're about to partake in and a bunch of other bonus content that I've done. I've added a tier at $1 per month where you can get a shout out on the show and an email from me. Also, all my eBooks, which we also discussed in the overtime content as well. But it uh, was really a pleasure, guys, and looking forward to the next time. As right, our week, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Last Nighters. So uh, good night from last night, everyone. Peace out, everybody. And scene. And we'll do a few more minutes with the actual Anarchy audience before we get into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Uh, so, Pat, I don't know if you're familiar. We do a show within a show so that there's a show behind the guy that we can share with the Normie Friendlies with the Last Nighter's name and all that stuff. It's it's really this uh, high art that we're doing in the podcasting game. Okay. Uh, I don't want to say I'm better than you, but yeah, I'm better than you. <laughs> meta, meta podcasting is what we should call it. Uh, yeah. So I totally insulted everyone in my audience in the beginning of the actual anarchy content. So if you've yelled at me for how I've how I mixed the how to talk to status Larkin Rose first time actual anarchy on Liberty Weekly podcast, well, piss off. Oh, wow. Throw, throw more gauntlets around here. Oh, yeah. Shade? I didn't know how to mix anything. So give me a fucking break. All right. Well, hey, let's. <laughs> I'm just sorry, guys. <laughs> We're going to put the show notes um, of your past appearances in here, but I'm just looking for them right now. Um, you were on for The Shining, which I think was episode, I want to say, 40 you know, I might have or so. And then also our episode 26, which was Rogue One. And that was with your co-host, Jerry, who was your co-host at the time. Yeah, he's my first co-host. And he's actually a member of the MGTOW movement or... He was when we knew each other or when we were doing the show. We still know each other. So. All right. So I have, I have a question related to that. I and mean, we can keep it in the actual anarchy portion of the show. Sure. Um, uh, and, and by the way, The Shining was episode 48. So actualanarchy.com slash 48 for you uh, being a guest on The Shining. And then 20. Oh, I'm wrong. 35 is Rogue One. 26 was Kenny the Wizard Tombstone, which is great. And then the uh, the Larkin Rose Candles in the Dark How to Talk to Status is libertyweekly.net slash 26, which I highly recommend people checking out. I think it's your most watched video, if if I do recall. Second most. Second most. Okay. Yeah. So it was it was great, yeah, it was a great episode, despite me shitting on everyone who complains about the intro music being too loud. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you can edit that and make it a little bit better, and I think that'll be good. But here, here's my question. We, we've talked about incels, I think, briefly in the past. I know the, the boys from Don't Waste Your Hate, who are also members of the Libertarian Union, did an entire episode on this. But is there a relationship or maybe a path from MGTOW to incel or vice versa? Ooh, the oh. MGTOW incel pipeline. <laughs> right, incel yeah, pipeline. because an incel is involuntary, right? So they they don't want to be not with women, but MGTOW is like, no, I'm staying away. Well, a MGTOWer isn't necessarily without women. He's just not going to get married. He right. might have a family. He might have several girlfriends. He might have a, uh, you know, a different woman he sleeps with every night. But an incel, of course, is someone who is involuntarily celibate, whereas a MGTOW is necessarily a, probably a much more successful male and is going either from hookups or maybe he's just, you know, going back to porn and video games. It, it, there's a spectrum there. It's not necessarily, you know, one or the other. Okay. I'm going to set it better myself. So, so that, that actually clar clarifies it for me significantly. So they're really probably is not too much of a connection um but it does other seem... than other than incels being blamed for everything under the sun apparently 
I've seen so many headlines of incels just being the most toxic, horrific people on the planet. When in reality, you're just ripping on virgins, poor virgins. Yeah, the only thing I know about is is the van guy up in in Canada. But apparently, I'm not trafficking the same sites that that you well, are. Well, there's the van guy, and then he before he went and did his van thing, he like did a post where he praised. Um, the other guy down in like Southern California and like San Diego where he shot up a bunch of people. I forget the guy's name. Do you remember Patrick? No. Okay. Well, there was a guy in like Southern California who was like, I'm going to kill all these women who won't sleep with me or something like oh, that. Oh, oh, wait. Um, maybe I do. What's his, uh, right? He was the really pale guy with the black hair, right? I can't think of the guy's name, but that's what I'm talking about. He's the guy that put incel in like modern parlance. Yeah. Elliot. Rogers. Rod. Elliot Roger, something like that, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Elliot Roger. I'm sure if we Googled that, that'd be the guy. He wasn't even that bad looking, I don't think. No, but he wanted revenge against all the women who turned him down. Right, he must have just been a horrible personality. <laughs> well, there seem to be more and more young, frustrated men who the answer is to kill them if you yeah. get super frustrated. Yeah, well, maybe we can dive into this a little bit further in our Kathleen Turner Overdrive uh, but why don't we wind this one down? So, Pat, uh, thank you for being a guest with us again for the third or fourth time on Actual Anarchy. Uh, we will have you back for American Psycho at some point in the future. And uh, wish you luck with the big changes coming to uh, Liberty Weekly. It sounds very exciting. I, I am privy to that, that uh, to the new shit, uh, to quote the dude from The Big Lebowski. And uh, I think it'll be a really good move for you and for the show. So people do check that out, libertyweekly.net. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode on actualanarchy.com slash 97, talking about liar, liar. And uh, I will say good night. Robert, you may have the final word, sir. You beautiful babies, thanks for tuning in once again. We really love you. We really appreciate you. Every time you open up your ear holes to our dulcet sounds, it uh, warms my cockles. I know it warms Pat's cockles. Dan's cockles are like raging on fire right now. I think that's a disease of some kind. He might have caught something the last time he went to Thailand. I don't know. But uh, thanks for everything you guys do. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for leaving a review. Thanks for uh, talking about us on the social medias. Thanks for talking about us in personal and real life to people you know and you love and you care about and you want to spread the message of liberty and to weird movie reviews. That's, that's us. So thanks again. Have a good night. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do